Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week we'll be talking about the Middle East and Scotland. First up, Anoush Shikalian and George Eaton will discuss the narrowing of the polls north of the border. Then after that, Jason Cowley, Sophie McBain and our guests John Bew and Shiraz Maher talk about the possibility of airstrikes on ISIS and where the roots of jihadism lie. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian and I'm acting editor of the Staggers blog and I'm joined by the politics editor George Eaton to discuss Scotland. So first of all, George, why have the polls tightened? Well, I think it's partly off the back of Alex Salmon's victory in his second debate with Alistair Darling, having lost the first one. Um, you know, he, was, he, he, he won the second debate as convincingly as Darling won the first debate. That gave uh, the yes side uh, finally some momentum again. Um, they'd been sort of flatlining in, in the polls for a long time. Their hope was always that the race would narrow at the end. Alex Salmon has a reputation as a strong finisher. I also think uh, Labour MPs have said to me that in, a, in, in this race, it was inevitably going to become more emotional, more charged, more aggressive as they uh, approach the finishing line. And that that tends to help the Yes campaign because they're better at winning hearts um, than they are heads. And so when people are emotional, uh, they say they don't always behave rationally. So the, the arguments against independence are very clear. Alex Salmond uh, can't say for certain what currency Scotland would use. He can't guarantee that it would have EU membership. But when, but, but he does have the more emotional argument. He does have... Um, a very stirring account of, of what Scotland could be, of um, the need for the people of that country to take charge of their own affairs. And that is clearly resonating with some people. Well, I remember when the um, government's Scotland secretary, Alistair Carmichael, came into his job. He's, he criticised the Better Together campaign for being too managerial, uh, not gutsy enough. Why, why haven't uh, the Better Together campaign become more emotional to challenge mm. Alex Salmond's strategy? I think it's partly because it's being led by Alistair Darling, who is, <laughs> a, who is a sort of classic technocrat, a classic wonk um, that let him down in the second debate, his overfocus on, on the currency. Um, one of Salmon's best lines was when he, you know, he attacked Darling as a, as a one-trick pony and the audience were moaning as he, he brought up the currency again and again. Um, and then I think it's partly because it's a, it's a cross-party coalition and so inevitably um, there are sort of compromises that have to be made. In a way, they, they don't so much on, on the yes side, which Alex Salmon completely dominates as, as the first minister of Scotland. Um, 
And you, you saw today when uh, Ed Miliband visited Scotland and saying a Labour government is coming. He was very much trying to create uh, a more stirring sense of, of, of the future for the union. Um, and obviously, uh, Better Together hasn't hasn't been able to do that so well. But um, there is an emotional case to be made for the union. I mean, that is the that is the irony that it is there to be it is there to be done. But um you know, quite clearly, uh, that is where Better Together is, is lacking at the moment. So this recent spike in the polls for the Yes campaign, is that just a one-off peak or is it something that could potentially be played mm. out in the referendum result? It's difficult to say because um, there's a lot less polling on this than I expected, actually. So I assumed in the weeks before the referendum there would be almost daily polls. And actually, at the moment, we're getting maybe one or two a week. Um, and so, as everyone knows, you, you should never look at polls in isolation. You have to you have to look at the trend. Um, but if the race really starts to narrow, um, and if even a poll puts the S side ahead at some point, uh, then they can acquire uh, uh, it acquires a momentum of its own. And, and if people like to feel part of the wave, people like to feel uh, they do follow the crowd to some extent. Uh, so that that would really scare the uh, the no campaign, obviously. Um, my my assessment and and that of most people is is that you know, the no campaign will win uh, just by a much narrower margin than they wanted to. Um, strategists on on the better together side have always said they'd they'd like a double digit win uh, to avoid a never endum, as they put it, mm-hmm. uh, where they have a second referendum in. In ten years, um, they want a they want an emphatic victory to settle the debate. It doesn't look like they're they're going to get that. So one consequence is the question could come around could come around again. Another consequence is that um, there will be significant devolution, perhaps even more significant than than the parties have already promised. Okay, and um, just one last question. Um, you've spoken about Ed Miliband's uh, speech today. How much of a disaster for the Labour Party in Westminster would it be if Scotland were to become independent? It would be much worse for them than it would be for the Tories. I mean, famously, the Tories only have one MP there. Mm-hmm. Labour have uh, 42. Um, it becomes much harder for the party to win majorities. Um, were, it not, were it not for Scotland, David Cameron would have a majority at the moment. Um, that said, it has been overplayed. People often mistakenly say that you would have a permanent Conservative government in, in the rest of the UK, um, which isn't true if you replay all of all recent elections throughout Scotland. Um, Labour obviously would have still won in 97, 2001, 2005, but even other elections before that. Um, Scotland only makes up 59 of the 650 MPs. So... Um, you know the the right stream and and the left's nightmare of a permanently conservative England is wrong, um, but it's especially in an era of in an era of hung politics um, when all parties are struggling to win a majority. Um, you know, Labour really does need um, far more than the, far more than the Tories for for Scotland to remain in the union um, for electoral reasons. Hello, I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. With me today are John Bue, an award-winning historian and a regular New Statesman contributor. We have Shiraz Maha as well. He's an expert on radicalisation and on Syria. Both John and Shiraz are from the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College 
London. And I have my colleague also, Sophie McBain, is with us. Um, she's an assistant editor on the New Statesman and used to live and work in Libya until the whole place began to collapse. Shiraz, um, you wrote a cover story for us a week ago in which you explored um, British jihadism, um, the radicalisation of, of Brits who are now in Syria, the collapse of Syria and Iraq, the emergence of Islamic State. And you ended quite pessimistically by saying that it's depressing, but the only way Islamic State can be combated is through some kind of intervention. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, especially as we're speaking on the day of the NATO summit in Newport in Wales when Obama's in this country? I, I think it's quite clear when we look at the Islamic State that to all intents and purposes, this is a functioning state. It's uh, very different to what we've seen in the past with Al-Qaeda, for example, as the Islamic State um, regards itself as a state. It operates as a very sophisticated insurgency. It has a fantastically well-equipped army. It has great resources. It has um, the, the budget or the economy of a country like Zimbabwe. So um, we're dealing with something quite formidable here. In and of itself, the idea of um, a group, uh, quite a millenarian, radical group, taking large chunks of land isn't unprecedented. It's happened before. I mentioned it in my piece. It happened in Mali. It happened in the Pakistan, Afghanistan tribal areas. It's happened in Somalia. In all of those cases, there was some form of Western intervention that r tipped the balance. Who's going to do that right now in Syria and Iraq? The, the national governments can't do it. Their armies are too weak. There's no regional impetus to do it. And so I feel, as, I, as you say, pessimistically towards the end of the piece, I, I conclude that the West will have to, unfortunately, get involved again in another Middle Eastern conflict in order to remove the Islamic State. When you, when you talk about involvement, obviously there have been airstrikes on ISIS, as they, as they were called, um, from the Americans. There seems to be unusual alliances being formed. I, I'm thinking here of the US and Iran. Um, where and how will the intervention come? Will Britain be involved? I, I, I would hope that, that Britain is involved in, in some capacity. It's very difficult to know quite what the, the shape of this intervention will be. Um, clearly, the current US administration favours drones, and that's their, their primary um, mechanism now by which to intervene in, in a lot of these places. The problem is having operational intelligence with which to do this. Some of the people we've been speaking to in that community say the United States is still, at, at the best case, about 18 months away from having operational intelligence to, to do uh, drone strikes against the Islamic State. So that's still quite, quite a lead time for them to, to continue doing what they're doing. But ultimately, we're talking about uprooting um, a state that has uh, territory roughly the size of, of Jordan. Um, so drone strikes in and of themselves, I don't think will, will achieve anything. I mean, I, I honestly feel at some level there will have to be some form of boots on the ground, whether that comes from the West or there's a regional force that is backed by the West. Um, but, but there has to be a major conflict that will have to take place. Between. Why, why is there such regional apathy, if that's the right word? I mean, the Saudi Arabia... Turkey militants are free to move across Turkey and into Syria. Um, Iran are obviously agitated as a Shia power. But why, why is, does there seem to be a lack of will on the part of the regional powers? I'm not entirely sure it, it, it is a lack of will. There's a lack of will certainly to get militarily involved. But these are powers that are all invested very heavily uh, in the conflict in one form 
uh, or another. So the Gulf states are, of course, uh, backing a number of rebel groups. Mm -hmm. They're not backing the Islamic State, but they're backing other rebels in Syria. They want to curb now what they see as the rise of Iran uh, in the region too. Um, but these are countries that have always eschewed military conflict. So Saudi Arabia, of course, uh, brought in the Americans when Saddam went into Kuwait. And I think that that's very much Which, their favourite of course, favorite enraged bin Laden. It enraged bin Laden, it enraged the, the region in, in many senses. Uh, and, and so they realise that's a, it's a difficult position to be in. But they don't want to have a direct conflict. Before I bring John in, um, and then Sophie, you mentioned in your cover essay last week why, if bin Laden were alive today, he would be rather pleased at the outcome in Syria and Iraq. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on that? Bin Laden's whole strategy and bin Laden's worldview was one where he said... If the West isn't involved in the region, then we can overthrow the governments here. We can establish an Islamic State. They'll melt away if we fight them. But it's the fact that they are backed by the West. They have relationships with the West that keeps them here. And so his whole strategy um, post 9-11 was to essentially bleed the United States to shock Western uh, populations into saying, forget about this region. We don't want anything to do with it. We want to pull back. That is the apathy we're seeing today. That is the view that we're hearing today with regards to this region. And of course, in that vacuum, the Islamic State has arisen. And that's precisely what bin Laden wanted to achieve. Yeah. Um, John, you've, you've been writing um, some superb essays for the New Statesman, um, several cover stories on, on the Middle East, offering kind of a grand geopolitical overview. About a year ago, you, you were disappointed. I think it's fair to say that Cameron was defeated in the House over possible strikes or British involvement in possible strikes on Syria. Uh, my concern at the time, and I think I expressed this to you, was who are, the, who are these rebel groups? And one of the dangers of intervening would be that we would be supporting some extremely nasty uh, factions. Where are you on this now a week? Oh, sorry, not a week, a year later. Um, I think a lot of that analysis stands up, although not all of it, and I'll caveat uh, one point that I made last year. I think my main criticism, my main gripe, was the quality of the debate in Parliament as a key mm. moment. This was about Iraq. It was not in any sense or shape or form an attempt to construct some sort of uh, strategic or intelligible strategic um, rationale for what the West is doing in the Middle East. And I felt that was uh, a certain level of abdication of duty, and it was time to move on. Um, if you remember, the parliamentary vote was only a vote um, in, uh, in, in support of uh, potential US military action or potential action by yes. an allied group. It was not to sanction military action. Uh, and no one was seriously thinking about boots on the ground. Uh, it was around the time of uh, that Assad um, um, attacked his own population with chemical weapons, yes. and that was the key issue. And it, it went over Obama's red lines. My second gripe, however, has actually in some ways proved not to be true, and this is even more worrying. And my criticism was that Britain, if it had, and I really do believe. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
believe it is, invested in, a, in an idea of global order, had to stick with the United States at a critical moment. Remember, this is a, a, the most kind of liberal but also realist president in many years. He's not President Bush. And it looked like the United States was turning around to do something nominal, politically significant, uh, if not a game changer in the conflict. Uh, but that meant airstrikes on um, chemical weapons facilities. So Obama was standing up to um, underscore or say, my red line has been crossed, something will be done as a key sort of geopolitical symbol. That did not happen. The knock, and that's partly because of the knock-on effect of, uh, effect of the parliamentary uh, vote and, and the effect it had on the president and the, the, the rumblings in Congress. Uh, so if you like, it's even worse a year on. Mm -hmm. And what we have is, and, and it's, it's so, um, in some ways, some people would say it's indicative of the, of the Cameron um, uh, uh, prime minister, you know, sort of premiership as a total, which is this government by essay crisis. We have foreign policy by... Um, convening of meetings of COBRA. We have not, in lieu of any sort of parliamentary response or any parliamentary support for military action, really construed a serious strategy. And here's the rub, here's the key thing. The US can afford to turn inwards, even if it's 10 degrees, it can afford to do that. The case for it to get involved in the Middle East is much more difficult to make, actually, than it is in the UK. We, and I think the issue of the foreign fighters and the fact you have British people beheading uh, people out there, the fact you have, um, and Shiraz notes that the figures, um, we cannot afford to ignore this. So we're stuck in this strange position where we like to have led from, led from the front with the US backing us up. Uh, now with the 10 degree turn of the US, we're kind of stuck in the middle uh, and we have more to lose from the implosion of the Middle East. Yeah, you talk about um, Obama's realism and I think, I think that's right. And we're, we've got a leader in the magazine this week exploring ex his, his, his approach to foreign affairs. What is you, And you're saying the threat from Islamic State is greater for the UK than it is for the US. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, uh, Obama's realism. I think there's lots to be said on this. Uh, I, and I think in terms of criticisms of him, that's immediately junk the sort of silly, um, uh, extreme right criticisms of him, or even take everyone out of the Bush administration, forget everyone on the, on the, the conservative uh, Republican side of US politics. The key criticisms are coming from people within the US diplomatic establishment, former ambassadors in the region, uh, people in the State Department. And the criticism is not that you did this or that, is that you did not have a strategy. And in fact, he keeps on, he, he said the other day, I do not have a strategy what, yet. What, what, what did you think when you heard that? Uh, well, it's almost like the kind of a cherry on the uh, uh, on the, the, the top of the cake for his critics. I mean, it's literally that he, 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 his words fulfilled every, everything that's uh, said about him from those sort of moderate centrist State Department um, officialdom type critics. And that, that was and actually, you know, in, in the UK, a uh, big critic who seized upon that Jack Straw. Again, not a, a sort of conventional voice and a kind of a, a sort of neoconservative agenda for the Middle East. I mean, you're, you wrote a, a well-received book on Castlereagh and you're, you're very interested in British foreign policy, also in a deeper historical context. Um, do we have a post-Blair foreign policy? Um, I think in, in, a, in a strange type of way, intellectually and personally, Cameron actually is an inheritor of Blair. Is. And, is, and that's what he believes and that's what he'd like to do. And if you remember his, his I get it uh, moment at the mm. end of last year's uh, mm -hmm. Syria, do, yeah. that was a recognition of the fact that 
the British nation was not with him. Uh, therefore, in it, so in between Cameron and, and and where he regards you know what's politically possible is this big gap, and no nothing has filled this gap. So we we do not have a strategy. We have an identity. We have a rationale. And we have a language for our foreign policy. We do not have a strategy and the means to to, to match it up at the moment. And I really think there's been a big void. You don't think Kate um, went to our bring Sophie, and you don't think Cameron has been chastened by what's happened in Libya after the fall of Gaddafi. Uh, partly, although politically, I don't think that that necessarily has hurt him. Um, I do think that adds actually, um, in some ways, to his own understanding, which is you have to to tip the balance and manage. I, I think it, it basically warns him away from the idea that there's some sort of easy solution. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, the more we turn our head away from these problems, the more they come come back to us to haunt us. But is there a, is there a stamina for the kind of intervention that would help rebuild these nations? There's not a stamina and there's not a capability in the British polity. And here's where I think it's it's really worrying and I, I, I offer a kind of a historical <laughs> insight. If you think about the things that called, caused the last two world wars, it was, it was an undermining of a liberal international order. Now that liberal international order is entirely selfish and self-serving <laughs> for the English-speaking nations. Let's make no mistake about that. We built it. Um, however, when that international order has been challenged in the lead up to the First World War and the Second World War, uh, and, and there was not enough um, uh, uh, substance to, to protect it or, 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 or um, preserve it, then we've headed into real problems. The key thing for the First and Second World War is the US was not interested in backing up Europe and fighting Europe's battles. And I think we're almost heading to that, that direction again. That is the real game changer here. The US is 10 degree, 15 degree turn inwards. Okay. Shiraz, before I come to you on, on British jihadism and radicalisation, I'll just talk about, to Sophie a little bit. Sophie, you lived and worked in Libya. Um, how long were you there? Uh, for just under three years, so from late 2008 right up until early 2011 when the, um, the revolution and then the conflict began. And what was life like um, under Gaddafi? Um, I think for the... The years before the revolution, it um, the country was there was a lot of foreign investment coming in. There was this kind of new wealthy class of Libyans, and then there was a very large majority who felt very left behind by this new kind of um, courting of the West in foreign investment. So you could definitely sense the rising resentment in some areas, and it was in some ways becoming more um, more open. Um, there were kind of tentative move to, moves towards political reform, but um, it was still very much a one-person totalitarian dictatorship. Gaddafi's face was everywhere. You couldn't criticise the leader. Um, and people were really quite anxious a lot of the time because of this huge police state. And when you, I mean, do you still have contacts in the country now, people you speak to? Yeah, I've actually got a Libyan friend who's fled the violence staying with me at the moment. Right. And when you you reflect on on what's happened, um, a a collapsed state, Islamist militants in control of great swathes of it, what do you think? Um, I mean, it feels like a huge shame and a huge missed opportunity because I think the West did intervene with a really strong humanitarian um, sense of responsibility. There was this real fear that if the West didn't intervene, Gaddafi would slaughter thousands and thousands of Libyans. And I think that would definitely have happened. But then what happened was we left a country with no central authority, no real kind of normal state apparatus, 
and more guns per head than they even know what to do with. So I think a lot of the problems now are really quite inevitable. And with the current crisis and the Prime Minister has called many times for for Western help, there is this really long-term trend where everyone has weapons and no one has um, any reason to trust the central state and hand their weapons in. And also this really quite interesting short-term problem where the Islamists did absolutely terribly in the recent parliamentary elections. They only got about 12 seats out of 200. And so they've now turned to um, turned to violence because they realise that they've actually lost the support of a lot of Libyans who maybe are very religious and maybe kind of had a, some... Um, some trust and some faith in in a group that claimed to be very close to Islamic values, and now they're really kind of seeing I think, the Muslim Brotherhood for, um, for for what they are and realizing the kind of dangerous side of this appeal to political Islam. Okay, thanks. Sure, we we think there's about what five or six hundred Britons have gone to Syria and, and fighting on behalf of Islamic State. Do we know how many have returned? Uh, estimates say there are, are about 260 returnees to this country at the moment. So people who are already back here? People who are back, yeah. And what's your... I mean, should we be alarmed? I think it's something the government needs to think about very carefully. Um, clearly, there are only about 40 or 50 people currently awaiting trial. So there's a large number of people who are free to roam around, um, but who have combat experience from the Syrian mm-hmm. conflict. And there's been no real serious discussion or exploration about what we do here. I think there needs to be some form of de-radicalization program. It should be compulsory. But the critical questions of who would deliver such a program, how we would gauge and measure the extent of someone being de-radicalized, and what happens in cases where we uh, assess someone to have fallen short of that criteria, um, these are all things that, that need to be discussed and looked at very carefully indeed. And the, um, as you said in your cover story last week, the roots of um, jihadi ideology are, are, deep in, are deep in Britain. There are parts of British Muslim life where uh, very extremist ideology has been allowed to spread for the last two or three decades now. And we've only begun to tackle it very, very recently. So there is progress being made, certainly at the centre in terms of um, at the the sort of public life level. We've removed the the caricature of figures of hatred, Omar Bakri Mohammed, Abu Hamza. These guys are, are no longer here. We've um, really pushed back, again, from the centre against the big, uh, old, established institutions, the Muslim Council of Britain and so on. But at the civic level, as we've seen with Trojan Horse, for example, then there's still a lot of work to be done. And it's getting down into the grassroots and tackling the problem there that we now need to think about how we, how we achieve that. And does that happen through the mosques, through education programmes? How do we do it? I think the mosques are one part of it, but in large part, actually, the problem there has been cleaned up. There isn't a big complex anymore like the Finsbury Park Mosque where um, they they operate as these big centres in the way they used to. I think now, in the absence of these leaders, in the absence of these big institutional hubs, um, the the problem has actually become fairly pervasive in, in some parts. And so it's about having a civic response through grassroots initiatives building capacity with organisations such as the Quilliam Foundation, but not just them, there are lots of other groups that are, are out there now, British Muslims for Secular Democracy, these kinds of groups that are coming out, that are challenging the Islamist ideology, and, and there needs to be more of that happening, as I say, at the grassroots. Okay. And John, to finish with you, uh, are we going to see um, British airstrikes on the Islamic State without some kind of cooperation from Assad? 
Uh, we've, when I don't think we're going to go down the cooperation with Assad rule, um, I, and I think there's very good logistical <laughs> and serious reasons for that. The first is that um, without Assad, you don't have ISIS, uh, and there's been a sort of Faustian bargain between the two for a long time now. Um, so that's not uh, the answer. I do think we've already seen, obviously, the airdrops. The uh, uh, Kurdish forces have been given body armor. Um, so Cameron is operating in a place where he doesn't quite have to get full parliamentary approval and sign off for those actions. I think you'll see increasing U.S. airstrikes, although slowly, as as is the want of President Obama. Um, and there may be some push for a parliamentary vote, but I think actually a key thing here, strangely, even though it's an isolated incident, the, the beheading, uh, the last two beheadings uh, have actually shifted British public opinion. Mm-hmm. And if you look at this, a Sun poll, I think today or yesterday, which says that 45% of British people now support airstrikes and I think 35 against. Yes, so these, that. you know, while the strategic problem has not changed, the politics and the perception of it has. And that might give Cameron a little more room to conduct what is his kind of post Blair light foreign policy. And do you think that because party support this time, do you think Ed Miliband would fall in behind um, Cameron, on, particularly if the third hostage, the British hostage, is beheaded in the, in the weeks ahead? I think it would be hard not to. And I think, again, we, we may just have got the Iraq argument out of our system over mm-hmm. the course of the last year. Um, and that was really what, what happened to the Labour Party last year. Uh, it was the kind of uh, Euro- Iraq, Iraq neurosis. And um, Shiraz, will the Islamic State be in existence in a year's time? I believe so. I think the Islamic State uh, will be in existence for, for for quite some time, actually. To to muster, as John has been saying, public opinion is shifting, but shifting slowly. Obama's not um, moving quickly at all on any of this, and unless there is a, a real determination, a real effort to uproot the Islamic State, I, I believe it will persist. So I, I think we'll continue to see it for some years. Okay, um, Shiraz, John, Sophie, thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Maughan. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.